Attention, listeners in and around Salt Lake City. Before we get started, we're doing a live recording of Zion Suffragists on Friday, February 28th at Clubhouse. It's 850 East South Temple Street, and we'd love to have you in the audience. Tickets are free, but limited, and you can register by going to deseret.com slash suffragists. Okay, let's do this. As the world says goodbye to the 1800s and the 20th century dawns, voting rights for American women aren't spreading. Suffrage isn't moving from west to east, as many had hoped. American women need some new ideas. The National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, presents a mile-long monster petition in favor of a constitutional amendment to Congress. So that's April of 1910. And the Utah Council of Women obtains over 40,000 signatures to contribute to that petition. Oh my gosh. Years after they've already secured their own suffrage, they're still personally invested. Have you ever seen and a then, petition that's a mile long in your life? <laughs> well, I've seen pictures. I'm Diana Douglas, and this is Zion's Suffragists, a podcast from the Deseret News about Utah leading the charge for voting rights for women in the United States. Utah women, secure in their own voting rights, want it for every woman in America. They want it written into the U.S. Constitution, where, I might add, it should have been in the first place. They evangelized suffrage. They talked about the gospel of equal rights. And they gave it a spiritual dimension. And that's not really surprising in a community like Utah that at that time was just saturated with spirituality. This is historian Rebecca Clark. Utah women were ready to help spread this gospel of equal rights. They just needed someone who was interested in their help. May I present a young Quaker from New Jersey named Alice Paul. She mastered the art of the spectacle. She learned to make the headlines, create large public events, get them widely publicized. Alice Paul had joined the British suffragist movement while she was studying in England, where women were throwing rocks through buildings and chaining themselves to light posts to get the vote. After being arrested there a few times, Alice Paul and her friend Lucy Burns came back to America, full of fire and not at all interested in plodding along state by state for women's voting rights with a bunch of proper old ladies in the National American Woman Suffrage Association. They had both been studying in England and had been heavily influenced by the more radical movement there and had big vision of what they wanted to do in America. They wanted to shake up the status quo. And they really ruffled feathers. Unwelcome in the National American Woman Suffrage Association, Alice Paul started her own woman's party, laser-focused on getting the constitutional amendment. Why were Utah women open to working with her, someone who had been jailed in England three times? Well, they had a shared goal, amend the Constitution. They had really already experienced firsthand the vulnerability and the weakness of legislatively granted voting rights because Congress had revoked their right to vote after they had already been exercising that vote for 17 years. Giving every woman in America a vote would also make Utah a little less of an outlier 
the suffrage amendment would offer more security to those privileges for everyone. Utah joins forces with Alice Paul. She wanted a show of force for the amendment. She needed a spectacle where everyone was watching. She chose the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in 1913. The day before Wilson was going to be sworn in, women for suffrage would march in a gorgeous parade, too big to ignore. Here's historian Rebecca Roberts. So the 1913 parade was the first civil rights march. It was the first march on Washington. The idea of taking a political movement and having a march announcing it right down the middle of federal Washington was Alice Paul's idea. The parade began with a float pulled by a horse carrying a banner that read, We demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States enfranchising the women of the country. Then 8,000 women followed it with floats, nine bands, four mounted brigades, three heralds with trumpets. It was extraordinarily well-planned, right? So there were all-female marching bands and working women marched by profession, the nurses and the teachers, and they all had matching costumes. The writers who marched together purposely stained their costumes with ink. (laughs) Um, There were floats from all the states that did have suffrage, which weren't many, but they existed, Utah among them. There was one group of suffragists who planned to march that Alice Paul wasn't so sure about. A sorority from Howard University was ready to join on the theory that if white women needed the vote to protect their rights, African-American women needed it twice as much. But Paul was unhappy about African-American women joining her parade. The Howard University women marched with their heads high, knowing that they might well be targets of jeers from the crowd. Or worse. Ida B. Wells, the legendary suffragist and human rights activist, was told to march with them, stay with the other women of color. Wells refused. Mid-March, she slipped in with her Illinois delegation. Almost immediately after the parade began, things started to go sideways. When you look at pictures from that day, Pennsylvania Avenue is shoulder to shoulder. You can't see any pavement between the spectators. And furthermore, all those spectators are wearing bowler hats. They're men. They weren't there for the suffrage parade. They were there for the inauguration the next day. And the suffrage parade was kind of a sideshow. And they went to go see it. And they blocked the parade route. The parade couldn't get through. They were absolutely in the way. And they were poorly behaved, you know. They tripped the women and spit on them and yelled names. And the police did nothing to stop them. In some cases, the police joined in. There were 250,000 people on Pennsylvania Avenue that day, drawn by the promise of the biggest and strangest parade that Washington had ever seen. You can't get a parade through a crowd that size, no matter how many horses and bands you have. The women inched their way forward as men grabbed their clothing, threw lighted cigarettes on them, snatched their banners, and tried to climb their floats. By the time the women got to D.A.R. Hall, they were furious, right? They were cold, they were dirty, they were insulted. These jerky men had ruined their perfect day. But Alice Paul, because she was such a savvy marketer, realized it was the best thing that ever could have happened. That a perfect parade would have been in the news for a day, and a near riot would keep suffrage in the news for months. And that's exactly what happened. Woman suffrage stays in the paper in 1913. 
But the papers don't let women vote. The government does. Here's historian Rebecca Clark. To protest the fact that President Woodrow Wilson still has not done anything to get women's suffrage passed. They begin holding a very controversial and unprecedented picketing campaign. So we are used to seeing picketers out in front of the White House now. No one had ever protested outside the White House before. But starting in 1917, women began standing out in the cold as silent sentinels on the sidewalk. We have two Utah women that we know for sure participated. Laverne Robertson and Minnie Quay. They were both married. Laverne was in her late 30s and had three sons. Minnie was in her 50s. President Wilson would sometimes close his eyes as he rode past them in the morning. Sometimes he would tip his hat to them. And they were called silent sentinels because they would stand there and they wouldn't say anything. They would stand in front of the White House all day with large banners that had very compelling messages written on them, like, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And sometimes be spit upon or have things thrown at them, sometimes be handed food or congratulations from from passersby. And then the women are faced with an agonizing dilemma. The United States entered World War I. Rather than tell you myself, I'll let Hillary Swank explain the dilemma in the movie version of it. This is from the HBO movie Iron Jawed Angels with Hillary Swank as Alice Paul. What? We can't picket a wartime president. Yeah, why the hell not? It's treason, that's why. Treason is betraying your country. Petitioning is not treason. At worst, it's just rude. Give it any name you want. The war changes everything. Now what do you do, right? Do you keep criticizing the president in wartime? Some people think that's treason. You are going to lose a lot of public support. Laverne Robertson, Minnie Quay, Alice Paul, all the women decided to go for it. They stood on the sidewalk outside the White House and kept up the banners. Soon enough, President Wilson got sick of them. The Capitol Police arrested the suffragists. Looking for something to charge them with, they were finally charged with blocking traffic. And it was bluff. They thought that they'd give the women the choice of a fine or a night in jail. And they would all say, oh, my goodness, I can't possibly go to jail. Here's my $5. I'll never do it again. One of many instances of the men in this history underestimating the women in this history. Because they all said, sure, I'll go to jail. Try me. There are women who will pick up the pickets tomorrow. So the next whole batch of women is arrested. And the judge says, $5 fine or three nights in jail. They all say, I'll go to jail, no problem. And it escalated so crazily through the summer and fall of 1917 that you had women being sentenced to 60 days in the workhouse at Occoquan for standing on a corner with a sign, which is not illegal. But the judge kept raising the stakes and the women kept calling his bluff. The Occoquan workhouse was a prison in northern Virginia, Locked up in Occoquan, with rats running through their cold cells, Laverne Robertson and Minnie Quay must have felt very far from their Utah home. They knew things would be bad. And Laverne, you know, she had been very politically active for a while, and so had Minnie. And I love Laverne says right before she leaves, I do not expect to escape arrest. So she knew going in 
that that was the risk. And she was willing to take the risk. Minnie and Laverne and many other women were horribly mistreated in the prison. They were among the 33 protesters who were arrested and subjected to what has been termed the Night of Terror. They were imprisoned on November 15th in 1917. And that night, while they were in the prison, the the warden ordered the guards to mistreat the women, to teach them a lesson. And there were beatings. Women were hospitalized. Several of the women went on hunger strikes. And then there were forced feedings that caused damage to them. In affidavits and letters, the women in prison told of their abuse. It started to be reported in newspapers. The mistreatment actually helped turn public sympathy in their favor. And within just a few weeks, President Woodrow Wilson shifted his opinion around and came out publicly in favor of a federal suffrage amendment, which was a striking change of events. We have made partners of the women in this war, he said. Shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and toil, and not to a partnership of privilege and right? A constitutional amendment started to look much more likely with the president on board, or at least possible. And so the protests continued until they actually received that congressional approval. The suffragists were released from prison, and Minnie Quay and Laverne Robertson went back to Utah to be with their families. Utah was conflicted about these protests. The Women's Democratic Club revoked Minnie's membership, and the Utah Council of Women denounced her for using such extreme tactics. But the National Women's Party asked Minnie to come back to Washington to demonstrate again. I am ready to do anything within my power, Minnie said. No sacrifice is too great. And that is stunning, particularly after having just undergone something so traumatic and knowing what she was likely going to experience if she went back. The U.S. Congress wrote an amendment to the Constitution and passed it in 1919. But that wasn't the end. Then the states had to vote yes or no. If two-thirds of the states voted yes, the amendment would be ratified. Utah was ready for this day. A state senator named Elizabeth Hayward wanted this vote to ratify the 19th Amendment to be a celebration of all the work that had brought Utah to this point. She secures a special session of the Utah legislature. They meet solely to consider ratifying the amendment. She introduces it. It passes in 30 minutes. The next day, the bill goes to the Utah House of Representatives. The women who are currently serving in the House as representatives all play a part. So you have Representative Anna T. Piercy. She's chairing the House of Representatives during passage of the amendment. And Representatives Delora Blakely and Dr. Grace Stratton-Airy gave speeches. And so you see a very intentional attempt to highlight the women and honor them. The whole legislature is recognizing that this is an important moment in time. And I, I like that. I like imagining them being invited to chair the session. Every single person in the Utah State Legislature voted yes to ratify the 19th Amendment. Every man and woman. By 1920, almost enough states had voted yes. Almost all of the southern states had voted no. The best shot at getting the amendment passed was in the southern state of Tennessee. Everything was teed up, but it was really close. I mean, 
really close. It was tied for the first two votes. So a dead even split. And then one state representative, Harry T. Byrne, who had previously been against the amendment and had been wearing the red rose that signified that he was against the amendment. A yellow flower was a symbol of the suffrage movement for a long time. Those in favor would wear a yellow rose on their lapels. Harry Byrne was wearing a red rose. And then he receives a letter from his mom, Feb Byrne. And it's this long, beautiful, hilarious letter. (laughs) She tells him to be a good boy and says, hurrah, and vote for suffrage. So he switches his vote. He changes his mind and casts the deciding vote in favor of suffrage, all because of that letter. And later on, he explains a mother's advice is always safest for her boy to follow. (laughs) I should say. So we owe it all to Miss Feb Byrne. Yes, she's like the the hundred thousandth woman. (laughs) Right, exactly. Utah celebrated the 19th Amendment with a parade and program on the steps of the Utah State Capitol. The 19th Amendment was a landmark achievement. But it was not the end, more of a big step in a very long march toward making the country a true democracy. The next step for Utah would require an opera. That story in the next episode. Zion Suffragists is written by me, Diana Douglas, and is edited by Tracy Keck and Laurel Christensen Day. Our producer is Andrea Smartin, and executive producer is Burke Olson. Rebecca Clark just co-authored the book Thinking Women, A Timeline of Suffrage in Utah. Rebecca Roberts is author of Suffragists in Washington, D.C., The 1913 Parade and the Fight for the Vote. Support for this podcast comes in part from Deseret Book, publisher of Thinking Women and Her Quiet Revolution, a fictional imagining of the life of Martha Hughes Cannon. You can find these and many more books at Deseret Bookstores at DeseretBook.com and the Deseret Bookshelf app. I'm Diana Douglas. See you next week.